I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning, page 1369, page 1369, and uh, Jane Bilesma and Ryan Decker are going to read our text for us this morning. We're beginning a new series today on the book of Daniel. Let's hear God's word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Daniel chapter 1. This can be found on page 1,369 in your pew Bibles. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and and he asked chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in according with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better 
than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to to God. God. As I said, we're starting a new series on the book of Daniel, and it's, uh, it's kind of an all-church study as well. Hopefully some of your life groups have picked up some of the Daniel materials. If not, maybe you choose to uh, study it on your own. Um, you can talk to me or to Paula if you need more information on, on that study. But let's dive into Daniel 1. Friends in Jesus Christ, I don't know Joel Shears, but uh, I have a feeling that he grew up somewhere near me because his story could be my own. Um, Maybe yours is similar. He writes this. He says, There was a cheery sign beside the highway that led out of my small Midwestern town. The purpose of the sign was to thank visitors for coming and encourage them to return soon. But, according to my high school carpool buddy Brian, the sign also served a more important purpose. It marked the outer limits of our small-town cops' jurisdiction. Brian, who always seemed to have the inside scoop on these sorts of things, claimed that if you were driving on the north side of the sign, the cops could and would nab you for going 56 in a 55. But if you were on the south side of the sign, you were off limits. The cops couldn't touch you there. So... Every morning when we passed the sign going out of town, Brian would gleefully punch the gas and take his little red Chevy well past the speed limit. And every afternoon, just before re-entering what we believed to be the local police's jurisdiction, he would tap on the brakes and bring the car back down under the speed limit. I don't know if you had friends like that, but I had a lot of friends like Brian. In fact, maybe I was even a little like Brian myself. Now, I'm not sure if Brian had his legal facts straight, but his understanding of jurisdiction, I think, is helpful when entering the world of Daniel 1. Most of the people in Daniel's world believed in a theology of jurisdiction. In other words, they tended to believe that there were many gods in the world and that each of these gods operated within a fairly limited jurisdiction. In other words, one god ruled the sun, another god ruled the rain. One god ruled the mountains, another god ruled the valleys. One god ruled in Jerusalem, and another god ruled in Babylon. Now, according to that mindset, what we're being told in these early verses of Daniel 1 is that we have just passed the road sign on the way out of Jerusalem. And from here on out, we are in Babylon. From here on out, the God of Israel has no jurisdiction. God's people, in other words, have come under the jurisdiction of someone else, the jurisdiction of the God of the Babylonians. And so what we're being told is that here in this place, here in in this text, Nebuchadnezzar is in control, all right? The God of Judah has been neutered, basically, all right? 
he doesn't even have um, enough strength to keep the articles of his own temple safe. They've been taken, they've been robbed, they've been brought back to the temple in Babylon. And what we're being told is that the God of Israel has no strength, and especially he has no strength in this place, this foreign place that's called Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who in this place is calling the shots. So, the question quickly becomes obvious for us. The question for God's people in Daniel's day and also in our day, and that is, how do God's people live in a place of exile? How do we live in a foreign land? How do we live under a foreign power? How do we live in exile? Now, that's a pertinent question Um, not just for us, but it's been a question for God's people throughout time. Because exile is the norm, okay, more than not. Exile is really the norm for God's people. Let's just think about that a moment. Um, It's not just God's people in Daniel that are living in exile. Uh, The book that our, our men's groups are studying right now, 1 Peter, begins in the very same way. To the exiles in the dispersion, okay? The book of James begins the same way. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, those who have been dispersed, those who have been shoved out, sort of, of God's presence into a different place. Jesus himself said about us, right? He said, look, if they persecuted me in this world, they're going to persecute you as well. You're not welcome here. Paul, in the book of Philippians, which we just finished reading, right, calls us citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what he meant by that is that ever since our ancestors were expelled from Eden, from paradise, human beings have been living east of Eden. We've been living in exile. This broken and sinful world is not our home. And think of many Christians today, right? You don't have to think very far to see the persecution of Christians. The Christians who just had to scatter and run out of Afghanistan as a new regime took power. They knew immediately, we are not welcome here. We have to go somewhere else. Talk to Kyle Apps sometime about how Christians are being persecuted in Nigeria. Other Christians are suffering. Why should we care about that? Why do we care about that if we're not suffering? Well, what did Paul say to the Corinthians as he was writing that letter? He said, when one member of the body suffers, all suffer with it. In that sense, all of us are in exile. But it's not even just in that sense. Even in Brookfield, Wisconsin today, I think we feel like we are in exile more than any other time in our history, perhaps. Ask any teenager around here how comfortable they would be sitting in their high school classroom saying that they believe God created the world. Or ask them what it's like in the hallways to state that our sexual relationships fall under the authority of the Bible. How well is that going to go over? I understand it was prom last night or homecoming or whatever. Ask some of our teens, so what was that like? What was the experience like last night? Were there certain things that you may not have been comfortable with? What's it like to be God's people living in a foreign land? 
living in exile. So that's the question for us. How do we live as God's people in a foreign land, in exile? But there's also another side to that. I don't think the question is quite that simple. And that's because of this. In chapter 2, or excuse me, in verse 2 of chapter 1, we also read this. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. That verb uh, is basically the Lord gave him over. The Lord gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. All right? But what you see here is that the Lord did this. The God of Israel did this. It's not as if he doesn't have any jurisdiction in Babylon. What we're being told here is actually that God has jurisdiction over the whole world. And it was God who gave Judah into exile in Babylon. And so that makes our question a little more complex. And we have to ask, you know, what is it like for God's people? How do we live when we're in exile? But also, how do we live in exile when we know that our God is sovereign? That our God is in control of it all? Let's take a look at that question. Let's see what Daniel might have to say about that, all right? As we said earlier, Daniel was hauled off to Babylon with the rest of what were considered to be, you know, the best of the best. So, Picture the Hunger Games, all right? The best of all the young people from every district. Daniel was one of those young people. Daniel would have been right there with Katniss. And just as in the Hunger Games, that oppressive regime tried to reprogram Katniss, so Babylon tries to reprogram Daniel. That's the goal here. They tried to make him Babylonian, not just on the outside, but also on the inside. And so they gave him a Babylonian name, right? And they gave him a Babylonian education. And they even gave him a Babylonian diet. They were trying to make Daniel a Babylonian. <clears throat> but Daniel was not Babylonian, okay? And so we read in verse 8 of our text that Daniel seems to draw a line. Daniel seems to, to, to draw a line in the sand that he says, look, I'm not going to cross over this line. I am Jewish. I belong to the God of Israel. And somehow I have to maintain that distinctness. Okay, I have to maintain that identity that I am a person of God. And he decides to do that through his diet. Daniel, we read, doesn't want to defile himself with the king's food. In other words, he's saying, look, you can change my name. You can feed me Babylonian creation legends, but you can't feed me the king's surf and turf. I won't go there. And friends... It's right here that I think all of us have to pause for a moment and point out that this is probably a really, really healthy thing for God's people to do. Not just for Daniel, but all of God's people who are living in exile. This is a good thing for us to stop 
and take a look at what our captors are trying to do. Because what they are telling us is that the only way to survive in Babylon, the only way to survive in exile, is to assimilate. If you're going to survive in exile, you've got to become Babylonian. You've got to look the part. You've got to play the part. You've got to be the part. And so put on the jewelry. Get the tattoos. Attend the festivals. Drive domestic. Invest in the Fortune 500. Adopt a new system of ethics. If you're going to live in Babylon, you have to become a Babylonian. And Daniel refused to do that. Daniel said, I need to draw a line here. Because if my God is sovereign, like I believe he is, then my God rules not just in Jerusalem, but in Babylon too. And I have to acknowledge that. And I have to be different. I have to be distinct. I have to be unique. I have to somehow communicate that my allegiance is to God and him alone. And what we find here is sort of the tension of baptism, right? I mean, baptism draws a line. Baptism says you are one of God's people. You are not a part of the world. You do not belong to the world, but rather you belong in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? I mean, how do we express that distinctiveness? I mean, what does that mean for Bo, that that he's been baptized? What does that mean for all of us? How do we live out our baptisms in this world, in a foreign place? Like I said, Daniel decided to draw that line with his diet. But how does it look like, or what does that look like in your place of exile? I mean, where do you draw the line? Have you ever drawn the line? Have you ever said, I am not going to be totally assimilated into this foreign place. I'm going to draw a line right here. I mean, have you ever felt that nudge of the Holy Spirit where he says, thus far and no further? Where is that line in your life? Where have you been judged or nudged? Maybe you've been nudged to dress a little more modestly than the people around you. Or maybe you've been nudged to, you know, act a little more nobly or to speak a little more kindly. Where have you felt that nudge? And the bigger question is, have you obeyed it? Or have you assimilated to Babylon? So that's one of the questions we have to ask. Have you drawn that line? And I believe the text demands that we ask that question of ourselves. But I also think that before we answer that question of where we draw that line, our text also demands us to consider something more. And the first thing is this, or the thing I should say is this. In verse 2, we read these words. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. 
The Lord did this. There's a reason that Judah is in exile. God put them there for a reason. They're in Babylon because that's where God wants them to be right now. God put them there, and it's not a vacation. Okay, this is punishment. This is punishment for their failure to live the way God has told them and commanded them to live. So let's just ask that question. If they are in Babylon, if they're in exile, because they have sinned, because they are being punished, then what is it that God wants them to learn? Okay, his punishments never come without purpose. What is it that he wants them to learn? And let's ask that question of Daniel, because Daniel is one of God's people. Daniel is one of these who has been put into exile. Is there something that Daniel himself needs to learn? And I think that's a question that, that many of us have failed to ask when we read the story of Daniel, right? Because we've all learned from, if you've grown up in the church, we've all learned from a very early age that Daniel is the example for all of us. He's the example supreme. And so we never would even imagine that Daniel might have something to learn from our God. But let's explore that question a little bit. Just why might Daniel actually be in exile? What might he have to learn? <clears throat> well, we said that Daniel draws the line against assimilation at his diet. Verse 8 says that he doesn't want to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So at first, it sounds like this is an issue of just remaining kosher, right? But that's what Daniel's after. <clears throat> the problem with that is not everything makes sense here, all right? For one, Jewish food laws did not prohibit the drinking of wine. And that's what Daniel states right out. He doesn't want to take part in the king's food and wine. There's no kosher rules. It's not unkosher to drink wine. So it doesn't seem to be just about being kosher. Other people have suggested that the meat and the wine at the king's table, those, those things would have been offered, first of all, to the king's idols. All right? And so Daniel is, is saying, I don't want to in, indulge in anything that's already been offered to idols. The problem with that solution is that the king's vegetables would have been offered to idols just as much as his, wheat, as his meat and wine. So why would Daniel be okay with eating the vegetables that were offered to the idols? Uh, a similar suggestion is that um, the king's food also means that if you ate and indulged in that food, you would basically be accepting the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar, that you would be willingly placing yourself under his rule. And Daniel didn't want to do that. But again, you have the same problem as the previous answer, eating the king's vegetables would communicate that same message as eating his other foods. And so, what is going on here? There seem to be all these problems, and commentators, friends, struggle to explain the answer here. What's really going on? What's really going through Daniel's mind? It just seems to me that the simple explanation here might be that 
when it comes right down to it, Daniel doesn't even know. Daniel doesn't even know what it means to be kosher. He doesn't know all the food laws of Israel. And so he's trying to find a way to be distinct, to be different, but he's not even sure what all the original food laws really even are. Now, let me throw another monkey wrench into this all, but this is one that I think helps explain this a bit. Verse 9 is the second time we read this verb that God gave, that God is involved in here, that God is quietly sovereign. He is quietly guiding all these events. And it says in verse 9 that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of the chief eunuch, okay? Or the chief official, I think it's, it's translated in your text. Daniel gave favor and compassion in the eyes of the chief whatever, okay? So, again, we get this message that God is guiding things here. God is in charge. But if that's true, then what would you expect? If God is guiding the events and Daniel wants to say, hey, I'm drawing the line here, I'm devoted only to God, and I'm going to express that through my diet, what would you expect the eunuch to say or the chief official you probably expect him to say, okay, that's right, Daniel, you do whatever you want. You set your own diet, and, and that's the way it's going to be. You go right ahead, Daniel, because God is, God is behind this all, right? He's moving it. But that's not what happens. Rather, the chief eunuch says, no, you can't eat whatever you want. You've got to eat the king's food just like everyone else just like everyone else. So what are we supposed to make of that? What are we supposed to think when the eunuch says no? Are we supposed to think that while all of creation is subject to the sovereign will of God, this one eunuch is not? That this one eunuch can overrule the will of God whenever he pleases? Or, as has been suggested, are we to think that maybe when the writer wrote down this text, he got these words a little too early? And what he meant to say is, a couple verses later, that there's another guard, just a generic guard involved, and that's the one that God moved to show favor and compassion to Daniel, and he did whatever Daniel wanted. Maybe that's the answer. Or... Maybe there's another option. Maybe we should read the text just exactly as it's given to us. And maybe we should think that, hey, maybe this chief official, this chief eunuch, is doing exactly what God wanted him to do when he said no to Daniel. No, you can't do that, Daniel. Perhaps it was out of love for Daniel that God said to him, no. Maybe God wanted to teach Daniel something. Maybe Daniel is the one who needs to learn something in this text. Don't forget, it's God who sent Judah into Babylon. Judah needed to learn something. What was it? Well, what happens next? 
What happens next is the eunuch explains to Daniel why. Why he says no. He says, Daniel, I fear for my life if I do what you want me to do. If I do what you're asking me, I could lose my head over this. And look how Daniel responds. Does he say, hey, this is more important, I don't care. I don't care about your life. I need to prove that I'm devoted to God. No, he doesn't. He takes a different approach. You might say he takes a softer approach. He goes to someone who's a little lower down on the totem pole, and he suggests what I think is a rather safe trial. Ten days. Give me ten days, he says. Now, unless this is the Nutrisystem diet, you're not going to learn much in ten days. Okay? You're not going to learn much in ten days. It's really not enough to tell you anything unless, unless God clearly blesses this diet. Okay? Ten days, you're not going to look a whole lot worse than anybody else in this position. Nobody's going to lose their head. But if God blesses this diet, they might look different. They might look better. Friends, what I want you to see is that Daniel here seems to have learned something. Daniel has listened. And by listening, what Daniel has realized is that he is not the only one in exile in this story. This eunuch is also in exile. He doesn't have control over his life. There are incredible repercussions for him disobeying the king of Babylon, right? Even for living near the king of Babylon. This guy goes off whenever he feels like it. And if this chief eunuch is to obey the king of the universe, he'll lose his head. He lives in, in exile just as much as Daniel does. Just as much as all of us human beings living east of Eden live in exile under the rule of a very cruel master. I think, friends, that God is teaching Daniel something here. I mean, God gave this eunuch favor and compassion toward Daniel. But what's happening here, friends, is that God is also giving Daniel favor and compassion toward this eunuch. Daniel sees him in a different way. What's happening here is God is reteaching Daniel, I think, about the food laws of Israel. Okay, just bear with me for a moment. Sometimes food laws can do more damage than good. Jesus said as much, right? What Jesus said is, what defiles a person is not what goes into his mouth, but what comes out of it. 
because that's coming from your heart. What's got to change is the heart. That's what these laws were all about, changing the heart, changing the heart so that good things come out of your mouth. Think about these food laws a minute. Why was it okay to eat beef but not pork? Why? Why was it okay that perch was on the menu but not lobster? I mean, it seems rather random, doesn't it? In a certain way, it was. And it was meant, that menu of distinction, right, that menu that made Israel distinct, in a certain way, it was supposed to get you thinking. If that was your menu, if you sat down at that table and looked at the food and said, well, I can eat this and can't eat that, you were supposed to ask why. And if you looked at all the animals in the wild and you saw some that God said were clean and some that God said were unclean, you were supposed to ask, why is that? That seems kind of funny. And then the very next question was, and why is it do you think that God chose us and said that we were clean and the Egyptians weren't? And the Babylonians weren't. Why is that? It seems kind of random. Either that or it's very, very intentional. Maybe it's grace. Grace that God would choose some... And then what was the intent? It was to bless all the others. God made us clean. God gave us a way to be in relationship with him. Why? So that we could bring all the others into relationship with this good and loving God. It was the intention of the food laws. That's what they were all about. They were a reminder to Israel every time they sat down at the table of their calling in this world. This is why you were chosen. Why God declared you clean so that you could bring all the other nations to a God who could make them clean as well. Friends, Daniel had to learn this. It wasn't something that just happened. He had to learn this. I think he did. I think he did. How do I know that? Why would I say that? Well, <clears throat> there's a big reason, and that is the diet, his new diet. It wasn't a kosher diet, it wasn't a diet just for Jews. It was actually the very diet that was given to all of humanity at the beginning in Genesis 1. All the children of Adam, of Adam, excuse me. What was their diet? All the seed-bearing plants. This is what I give you for food. Daniel's going back to the beginning. He's reminding himself, I am one of God's people, one of God's creations just like everyone else. Just like everyone else. It's a diet that supersedes the diet of Israel. 
It's a diet that supersedes the diet of Babylon. And it's a diet that will last forever. In fact, Scripture seems to imply that in the kingdom of God and the new creation, that's what our diet will be again. We'll go back to all vegetables. And so Daniel is sort of laying out a vision for all of humanity, for himself. He's got to understand that I'm no different except that I've been touched by grace. That the Babylonians around me, they're also exiles who need to experience the grace of God. And it's me. I get to be the one who shares the good news. Now what does that mean for us, friends? Is how we live in exile. How we live as if God is sovereign. Well, we live as if God is is still at work in this world. God is still quietly sovereign, bringing about his kingdom. Because, friends, we're called not to assimilate to this world, aren't we? We're called not to assimilate. For some of us, that's a really, really hard thing to do. And we think, you know, it's just too much work to draw those lines in my life. It's too much work. I don't want to do that. We're also called not just to be separationists, are we? Not just to isolate ourselves. Not just to stand apart because that doesn't do any good either. And so we walk this line of trying not to assimilate too much to the world, to be involved in the world, and yet to be somewhat separate, to be distinct. But then we think, boy, but I don't know if that's going to do enough. I don't know if that's going to do anything. I don't know if that's going to change the world. And then we read this last God gave in verse 17. And these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. In other words, God takes Daniel and he elevates him to high places in the kingdom where he has incredible influence on the future of the world. Do we believe that God will do that with us? That he's really at work underneath our struggles not to assimilate, our struggles to somehow remain separate but not too separate? Do we believe that God is really at work and behind it all? God blessed Daniel's new, softer approach, I think. God blessed Daniel's new diet. He promoted him to that place of incredible influence in Nebuchadnezzar's realm. He said, God has a place here. God is sovereign. God is ruling. And this text ends in an incredible way. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Who cares? Okay? Who cares? But what we don't understand is that King Cyrus was a king of a totally different kingdom. King Cyrus was a king of Persia. In other words, Daniel outlasted Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel outlasted all of Babylon. Daniel ruled, or Daniel was in this position of influence longer than the entire kingdom of Babylon. Why? 
because God is behind it. And God's kingdom is bigger than all the kingdoms of the earth. And God is the one that we bow before. God is the one who dictates how we live. God is the one who teaches us, hey, if I'm your God, this is how I want you to live. I want you to remember that the people around you, they're in exile too. They need my grace too. They need the love of Christ. How are you going to share it with them? Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Lord God, as your baptized people here before you, by the power of your Spirit, guide us to struggle with what that means. What does it mean to be distinct in this world? What does it mean to be different? What does it mean not to assimilate? And what does it mean to love our fellow exiles? What does it mean to understand that we're all in the same position apart from your grace? Lord, show us how Jesus balanced that line again. Show us once more how Jesus was totally, totally committed to his Father in heaven, but also totally committed to the exiles from Eden. How he gave himself completely. Lord, help us to follow that example. Help us to love like Jesus did. Guide us by your spirit. We need that guidance. In your name we pray. Amen.